Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? And so I want to make the distinction between like your sexual expression is actually like can be distinct from your attachment, attachment patterning and doesn't have to be linear and causal. It's not your star sign, you know, it's not like, it's not, it it changes, depends where you are, who you're interacting with. And, um, it's as much as your own, what's going on. It's about the space in between and how that space is kept. Hi, welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. This podcast is for those who challenge the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla, and on this episode, we're going to be talking to the extraordinary, unapologetically badass Angie Gunn. Angie's a therapist who co-owns a private practice in two digital companies, which focus on providing avenues for healing trauma, expanding authenticity and vulnerability, and finding infinite pathways to pleasure and connection. She treats primarily LGBTQ, IPA+, kinky, non-monogamous sex workers, and sexual trauma-survived clients through the lens of intersectionality, social justice, and trauma-informed care. Angie is a fellow social worker and is a queer, kinky, non-monogamous abuse survivor who is in the daily fight to balance personal and professional fulfillment and sexual expression. And we are so excited to jump into this topic with Angie. Hi, Angie. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. I am so excited you're here. Attachment and trauma are probably my favorite topics to discuss. Um, <laughs> and as a relationship coach, it is the such at the core of all the work that I do. And it comes up and I spend most of my time telling, informing people and telling them about it and getting, to, getting them to reflect on it. I'm so excited that we're getting to, get, we're getting to talk about it on the podcast. Just to get the foundations for everyone, tell me about attachment in layman's terms. What does it mean? What is that dynamic? Where does it come from? And how does it fit into our lives? So I've been teaching about attachment and learning about it myself for about 10 years. Um, I previously worked on child welfare system and so did a lot of work around abuse and neglect and um, primarily sexual trauma with kiddos. And so I did a lot of work around um, young attachment. And um, so if you imagine the easiest way to explain it, imagine a parent and and a baby and Every day that baby has distress. They cry, they scream, they, they express some kind of need. Um, the parent responds to that need. You can kind of imagine it as a circle. There's distress, the parent responds to the need, the child calms down, and then the child starts over again. And the typical infant goes through that cycle 50 to 100 times a day. <laughs> 50 to 100 times a day, they are needing a parent to show up for them consistently, predictably, and in a way that's going to soothe them and teach them that A, the world is safe, B, that their parent in proximity to them is going to help keep them safe and people are safe and that their parent can help regulate their nervous system and their emotional system. So I can learn to calm down. um, I can learn to navigate my world. I can learn to experience what it's like to be a human and grow into learning those skills on my own because of that safe environment that my parent has created for me in that first early period of life. Zero to three is most important, but in general, the rest of your life, you're continuing to reinforce and learn those skills that people around you will keep you safe and will show up for you predictably consistently. 
just want to put an asterisk there and go um parenting is hard people parenting is hard 50 <laughs> yes, times a day is. yeah yeah i mean jackie has a nine-year-old beautiful daughter and we do talk about um parenting and i am surrounded by friends who are caring for um infants all the way from like a few days old since the quarantine to like you know eight nine year year olds and everything in between and uh parenting is hard and it has such an impact on the being that you are parenting right so tell me about how that need for care um then is enacted in the way how does that then transfer to who we are in the world and how we show up in relationships yeah, I think we're going to, have to talk about this a little bit throughout the day today, but um, it's important to know that it's not uh, deterministic or causal. So those early attachment patterns really are kind of your first springboard into future relationships. And so they will impact how you relate to everyone the rest of your life. Um, but then every new relationship, every new friendship, every new partnership, every new social relationship is going to feed into that patterning. And so it will impact it in a way that can either contribute to gaining more secure attachment or more safety um, or more insecurity. And so typically the two polarities are that secure attachment. You can imagine it kind of like a spectrum. So one side is secure, other side is insecurity. And within the insecurity lens, you are typically either anxious or avoidant. Um, and there's a little bit more breakdowns within that, but it's not super important to get into all of the more distinct breakdowns. Um, and only about maybe 5% of the world is entirely secure. <laughs> so the rest of us fall somewhere along that spectrum of having some level of insecurity at some point in our lives. And a lot of times it is relationally based. For example, um, I say this all the time, actually, when I talk about sex ed, 18-year-olds learning to fall in love and have sex for the first time or you know, younger kiddos typically don't know how to be in relationships effectively and cause a lot of harm to each other because they don't have the skills. And so that being our first relationship ends up being really impactful <laughs> when we then have to learn, how do I love after this heartbreak that I really just didn't have the skills to navigate this? And yet now this is my foundational relationship for the rest of my life. <laughs> right, right, right. That the blueprint for relationships comes from our parents uh, or those you know our primary caregivers and that, that first experience of love is where it kind of like really grinds in because it's enacted and, and, and with people who are different than, than than our parents for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I um, completely agree with you when you're saying it's not deterministic. And I also agree with you that it is uh, it changes for people depending on experiences. With that in mind, I would love to still hear from you what... So you, we talked about the spectrum, the, the sort of the secure on one side and insecure on the other and, and then a whole sort of slew of the way it's enacted in between. Can you give an idea of like, what does a secure attachment look like? Um, what, how would we know if we are securely attached in that moment or in that particular relationship versus if you were in the, the insecure side, be it um, anxious or avoidant? I like kid examples because people can usually wrap their head around things that children do. So the easiest example for obscure, obscure attachment is you're watching some kiddos on the playground and the more securely attached kiddo is um, usually more expressive and engaged in the world around them. So they can like moms, mom or dad or whoever is safe on the, on the bench. I'm going to wander. I'm going to play. I'm going to jump. I'm going to chase. I can look over. They're still there. I feel safe. I can, I can be really exploratory in my body, in my expression, in my identity. Um, I can make friends a little more confidence and self-assuredness um, and safety in that I know I'm going to go home with mom and dad or whoever I'm going to go home with, I'll be safe. Whereas in the insecure kiddo, a lot more clinging, a lot more checking in, a lot more, um, or just completely taking off. <laughs> see you later. See you in two weeks. So, and we see the same patterns in our relationships, right? Like, are we seeking a lot? Are we pursuing? Are we chasing? Are we struggling to feel safe and connected? Are we struggling to even try to form a connection and, and do, doing a lot of this? Um, we'll talk about the sexual patterns, but are your sexual patterns more geared towards avoiding intimacy and depth of connection? Or are they more towards, um, I need that connection, that depth to feel safe in sex? So various polarities based on how you relate to your attachment style. 
And then what are some of the, again, I want to sort of go with this big, big, broad stuff. And then, and, and, and the, what I'm trying to also get down is I like get so that people can reflect on themselves and figure out where they might fit into this sort of narrative as they are today, because it does change. I do agree with you. What are some of the reasons why we might find ourselves either on the insecure side of the spectrum or the uh, secure side of the spectrum or the insecure side of the spectrum? So we think about early childhood development, the most important factor to really think about is were there any trauma-related patterns in our childhood? And most what we, what we call insecure attachment patterns is actually um, maladaptive coping as a result of trauma. Um, so your body literally is trying to survive. And so when that parent or that caregiver didn't show up consistently, your body had to find a new way to care for itself. It needed to find a new way to orient to survival, to defend yourself, to keep yourself safe, to care for yourself. And so that survival is often either people are unsafe or people are are indiscriminately connected. <laughs> and so there's sort of these, I imagine there's a, there's a chart I can share with folks when we talk next week in the workshop, but you can imagine a chart with two, X, two axes, an X axis and a Y axis. Um, and the Y being, um, do you feel safe with others? And then the X being, do you feel safe with yourself? And safe with yourself is anxiety, safe with others is avoidance. Um, and so you're really trying to assess when we're looking at attachment patterning, which piece of the polarity am I, am I struggling the most with? Am I okay? <laughs> and are other people okay? And when you say am I safe with your, with yourself, you mean like I, I feel physically and emotionally safe just being with myself? Is that what you mean? Right. Like I know I'm okay. I know I'm valid. I know I'm loved. I know I'm wanted. I know that I'm a worthy human being. <laughs> um, I, I am not anxious about my existence in the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you said the thing that sort of makes that, that distinction is often around trauma. Like something that happens while you were sort of merrily skipping along, feeling safe with yourself and others, something happens or few things happen, then then it's registered as trauma, and then you decide that you that safety is questioned and maybe threatened. So that, that's I think that's essentially what trauma is, right? Where your where your safety is threatened, uh, perceived or real danger to your safety, your well being, your 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 existence. Correct. And we'll talk a lot more about the neurobiology next week. But when you're a kiddo, you don't have the words yet to articulate. Like, mom can't meet my needs right now because she's busy and she's working or whatever. Like, your brain can't can't rationalize that you, you should self-soothe for a few minutes. So instead, the immediate go-to, if it's happening repeatedly, is that this person is unsafe. I am therefore unsafe. And our brains are really, really smart. And they're trying to always adapt to figure out how to best take care of ourselves. So one of the most common signatures that we see of trauma patterning is a nervous system that is a much smaller window of tolerance. And this is basically the window in which your nervous system can handle fluctuations where it's activated and then it's shutting down. And most humans have like a, you can imagine kind of like a little wave um, where we can handle a little bit of distress every day. <laughs> um, but when you're experiencing trauma, that window of tolerance is much smaller. And so it's much harder for you to stay within a common pattern. Um, so you're more likely to be overactivated, um, which can look like fight or flight responses, can look like freeze or fawn. Basically, your system is more likely to get super escalated or to shut down more quickly. And in relationships, <laughs> those patterns don't usually work very well because our partners kind of want us to be present and engaged and connected. And our ability to understand our own trauma patterning and how that's impacting our attachment is really important to then helping us heal long-term. Um, and I say often that folks, one of the biggest things that's missing in attachment research and attachment conversations is after your parental parental attachment patterning, you have to take a pause to become your own primary attachment source before you enter into partnership. And we haven't really taught kiddos how to do that. Young young adults don't learn how to do that. And if they don't become their own primary attachment source, they never figure out how that being okay with themselves works. And they try to transfer all of those parental expectations onto a partner, <laughs> which almost never works. 
Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I think you see that, right? You see that people, um, I've definitely been in relationships where, where, I've, where I've met the person's parent or, or, or mother that I've kind of, I've been shocked to how similar that we were, you know? And then you're like, whoa, this is like attachment 101. You know? <laughs> right. like, I feel like transferred over, you know? And it happens in such a subconscious level because like you said, we're not informed on what it is and how to make that transfer, how to make that transfer from parent to self and then into a relationship. What would be some of the ways that, and I want to just, I want to sort of go back into sort of an uh, adult, but I do, since we are talking about kids and I think it's really important because it happens in childhood, you know, when we, when I'm working with clients and I'm sure when you're working with clients, you start with childhood. What was your home like? You know, what was your relationship with your parents like? What, what was their relationship with each other like? And then from there, you can pretty much get an idea of what their blueprint is um, and why they're doing some of, some of those things. So um, since we're talking about that missing piece, what would that look like? What, what, would, what would that look like both from a, a, a parental point of view and also a personal point of view that, that a child is, leaves the parents' care, becomes self, you know, able to self-care and then goes into the world to find a partner? What, what would that missing piece look like? What are some of the things that parents can do to, to make that transition uh, possible? I mean, I think one of the most important things that I work with clients on who have kiddos and when I worked with kiddos is trying to figure out how to teach um, emotional regulation skills. So <laughs> helping them to learn to self-soothe, learn to identify what is this feeling? How big is this feeling? How do I express it effectively? How do I get support when I need it? And learning how to strategize to use multiple resources outside of their family. And so building friendships, building community engagement, um, building social skills, creative skills, intellectual prowess. So Showing up themselves as a human being, which I think a lot of parents have that awareness. Like I want this person to be more than just like my puppet or my like my pet that I <laughs> take to the park. Um, I want this to be this their own individual entity someday. So a lot of those like independent skills are really important. Um, but I'll ultimately I make this joke often because I hate math class, but um, I think that all math class should be eliminated and we just teach kids sex and relationships from day one in school. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. they, they need they need rela- relational skills is the thing that most kids are really lacking. Is like how unless the parents have a lot of skill in teaching it, they there's a lot of this, like how to solve conflict, how to resolve emotional distress with with, with friends and partners, how to um, communicate boundaries, how to understand your yes and your no, um, how to figure out where a lot of the research talks about securely attached humans are more likely to be empowered in pleasure and have an understanding of how they can show up in pleasure and be mutual with a partner, <laughs> which I think most humans really struggle with, which is the first indicator to me that most of us are not securely attached. But there's this like this sensation around like my pleasure is important, my identity is important, my expression gets to have space to be in partnership um, that a lot of us have a really hard time doing. And that starts from day one in childhood when parents say you get to masturbate, you get to have self-pleasure, you get to understand your body, you get to figure out how you be in partnership while still being a whole person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So important. I just wanted to throw it in there because by the time we're seeing people, they're adults and some of these things are already ingrained. You're trying to do some undoing um, and it would be amazing if it was kind of, it would give people a, a much better start in life if you could really nail that down as a parent you know i think we get so caught up on math and 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 you know all the things uh but i think if you can really get people um kids to become self-reliant and to be able to um ask for help build community build connections just it just sets them up for life in a way that you know geography class might not <laughs> geography is totally. easy i'm saying geography is important but you really <laughs> want to set them up i set them up in life uh you want to nail that down yeah okay so i want to go back to trauma a little bit because um we've talked about how trauma is one of the reasons why we where we end up on the insecure side of the attachment spectrum 
and I, I know that at least from the work that I do, sometimes people who have trauma and now um, in relationships and because of the, sh- the, the narrow window of tolerance, it sometimes even presents like bipolar. Or like bipolar too, when they're sort of like hypo, um, hyper and hypoactivated uh, and kind of bouncing between the two sometimes and not spending much time in their sort of wise mind, their adult selves and their window of tolerance. And that has an impact on relationships. And then you, your work is around then that, that distress around attachment then also showing up in, in our sex lives. So I want to kind of understand how those dots connect. And I think, you know, um, my therapy practice is a little bit different in that I work really hard to stay out of pathologizing. And and I think that the, a lot of the diagnostic, um, terminology is, um, a stems from oppression lens, um, like old white men 70 years ago came up with (laughs) these categories of how we relate to the world and our moods and our identities, which don't really serve us. So, um, I work really hard to say that most of us are suffering from trauma and those trauma patterns are really complex. Um, and so within that lens, Um, we can then have more space for institutionalized and systemic oppression and for factors related to intersecting identities that impact trauma. In that when you have multiple layers of oppression, it makes it much harder to A, learn how to feel securely attached (laughs) and B, have space and time for expressive relationships. And so I think just, I wanted to just give that caveat that it's much more complex and I want to make sure we have an oppression lens in the conversation too. So, I mean, at, at the very base level, the trauma manifestation looks like nervous system activation. And so that can be patterns where it feels difficult to be in your body. Um, the most common thing I see with clients is a constant distress around just being themselves, <laughs> um, which can look like activation or shutdown. And so that can be anxiety. It can be um, overwhelm. It can be difficulty with um, sleep patterns, difficulty with managing mood, regulating um, reactivity, navigating the ways in which your body is basically sending you cues that aren't accurate. Um, we like to think about the uh, the HPA axis in our brain is the kind of like the watchtower. Um, it's, it sends chemical electrical signals to your body to tell you when you're supposed to be reactive to trauma um, stemming from the vagus nerve. And in that, in that watchtower role, it's constantly saying there's a fire, there's a fire, <laughs> there's a fire when there are not fires. And so depending on how your body is um, uniquely programmed, you may react to the fire by completely shutting down. And that fire could look like your partner's coming home late from work. <laughs> you know, something super simple. But your system has decided this means that they're leaving me, they're cheating on me, that I'm bad and wrong and they don't want me anymore. So it's a deeply seated attachment wound around belonging, around importance, around love that is stemming from your trauma system not working. Um, working effectively in the sense of survival, but not working in a way that's going to best serve you. Because <laughs> it's, it's not reality testing. It's just the trauma system in our, in our bodies reacts before our cognitive brain is, on, is online. So your brain can't rationalize what the trauma system is doing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And the, the, I always think of it as like the switch is kind of stuck. Like it's like the switch that's supposed to be on off is kind of stuck in between. It's like seeping through what otherwise wouldn't be like seeping through a little bit of stress and a little bit of anxiety and and, and um, activation constantly. And your nervous system is like just half turned on at all times. And then in the last episode, we actually talked about with um, Stella Harris, uh, which is how we got connected, which is awesome. We talked about how the nervous system doesn't actually no story like it's it it just is activated you know and we talked about how we can use that activation it could be anxiety it could be lust it could be passion and and it's just about this, this is an activated state and i think in this case also your what i'm hearing is your body's activated because it's expecting a fire or a lion and the story that you're imposing on it it just happens to be con- contextually relationship based because it's stemmed from an attachment struggle is that what i'm is that what i'm hearing 
Exactly. Yeah. So attachment is basically the relational trauma piece of trauma. So it is the, like my trauma is tied to relationships in some way, meaning that somebody abandoned me, harmed me, didn't show up for me, wasn't consistent, didn't care for me in the way that I needed. And at some point, and that can be any level between parents and partnerships and friends and community. Um, and so I think really expanding the attachment lens to literally every relationship you've ever had (laughs) somehow is contributing to how you relate to feeling safe in partnership and in connection. And whether you trust and believe that um, you're loved, you're wanted, they'll show up for you consistently and that this love is safe and belonging is is something that you can count on. Yeah, yeah. And I would like to add in there is it's also, I think it's important that, uh, you know, this is the nature-nurture debate, right? So um, there is also a factor in where your dispositions are that for some people, I think resilience is a disposition. It's also a skill that you can work on for sure. And I think if you have a disposition that is more on the resilient side, that maybe those neglects and and um, misbehaviors or all these things might not impact you in the same way that someone is maybe more sensitive and that just because the things are happening around you or happening to you, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to impact you the same way. How does that work out? Yeah, I mean, really easy. Often we see in child abuse studies, kiddos in the same household had pretty much the same experience of abuse patterns and did really different reactions in terms of how they manifested behaviors and relationships in adulthood. So yeah, like there's lots of factors. And I think that's why we say consistently that attachment is not deterministic. Like you know, we made the joke earlier that it's not your star, star sign. It's not your love language. Like um, it is, this is not stagnant. It is constantly changing and growing. And even John Bowlby, who was the first kind of originator of the concept, has changed his position later in his life in the 70s to say that, no, this is it, it's influenced by tons of internal and external factors that impact how we relate to people um, and not to be so hyper-focused on that zero to three. And, and so I think there's just, yeah, there's a lot more of that space for understanding your individual patterning and your personality and how you're going to relate to partnership. And the one caveat I want to give in terms of trauma is a lot most of the world is living with undiagnosed trauma or trauma that hasn't been recognized. And so, um, so many couples I work with, I, I, that's the first thing we talk about is like, do you understand trauma? Do you understand how your current pattern, your conflict you're having in the room in front of me um, is actually trauma? And as a trauma survivor myself, I've spent a lot of my life unpacking every single day. I think I find a new layer. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that too. And this thing and this thing where I've like made lists of these are all like the way that trauma and attachment pattern and difficulties have manifested in my relationships, my relationship with money, my relationship with my body, my relationship with my community, my relationship with work and like all of these patterns that have been me survival orienting to stay safe in all these places in my life um, that haven't gotten awareness. And so the more we kind of like shine the light on the experience and for this conversation, we want to, we want to talk about this experience in sex, but shine the light on like, how are we showing up in sex and how could that be related to attachment patterning and trauma healing? Yeah. Um, perfect segue. Cause that is exactly what I wanted to sort of steer us towards. Like, so we, I think we've sort of have an understanding of a uh, broad understanding of how attachment works in sort of human psychology and how, what are the determined, what are the factors that determine what we're influenced by and how it might show up depending on who we are, where we are in our lives and, and, and what's, what we are experiencing. And then here we want to kind of talk about, well, how does that then show up in our sex lives? One benefit of um, having very little boundaries and being an anxiously attached kiddo is that I'm more more often to share my stories with everybody. So I, I, growing up as a trauma survivor, I spent a lot of my life without having any relationship to my body or pleasure. Um, I grew up in a fundamentalist cult and I was like a virgin bride at 20. And so I had like my sex was in this tiny little box that was contained by trauma. And my sexual development was also in that tiny little box. And so the last like 10 years of my life have been spent unpacking and exploring how to get access again to this expansive part of myself and helping other people to do the same. And in doing so, I've learned a lot about the ways in which trauma and attachment difficulty impact our ability to have access to pleasure and our ability to have access to the 
beautifully expansive potentialities that is sex and pleasure. And so I think there's a lot of potential for um, digging into your specific manifestation of, do you really know what you like? (laughs) Do you really know who you are and how you engage in pleasure? And what are the edges? And if you could push back a little bit, what are the places that you've never had access to in terms of genders, identities, types of play, types of connection within your body, even just on your own? And how do we peel back those layers of trauma to give you access to the full, beautiful world that is your sexual pleasure? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to what we we're saying about the the body um, can't tell the difference uh, between arousal and an anxiety, right? Arousal, like sexual arousal and anxiety. And if you're using up the bandwidth that you might otherwise allocate to pleasure and sort of a sexual arousal, if you're using that bandwidth up or using the same sort of system up for anxiety instead, there's much room left. And if your connection to do with your body is constantly throwing up alarm bells, then it's, it makes sense that you kind of sever that connection and, and, or, or stop listening to it or start avoiding it. And that how it then obviously, you know, plays out most in sort of in these very vulnerable space that is, that is our sexuality, our sexual expression. Right. And even at a very basic level, you know, because most of the world's not getting good sex ed, there's this piece where like people don't even know how to start exploring that part of themselves. Like I just think food is a good, a good example where like we're often like telling kiddos, like you can try everything and like, it's all great and like, see what you like. And like, but we never do that with sex and, and kids. So we never give them that like space. Very few parents give them that space to really find how do they relate. And when there is a trauma pattern on top of that, um, the capacity to begin to understand, even know that arousal exists, even though like, this is what this thing is, this is what my body's doing this is what I like, this is what I want, is so, so narrow. Um, and I think one of the biz- biggest examples of that is monogamy. <laughs> um, and we can talk a lot about attachment patterning and monogamy and polyamory, and that could be a whole other conversation. But um, you know, when you're only given a mononormative framework, your relationship to attachment and safety in relationships is within that framework. The most difficult part of that framework is this belief that I am only safe if I am chosen, if I am the one, if I am the most important, and if this person gives me all of themselves. <laughs> and that's what secure attachment means. So we're giving kids this predefined, kids, adults, humans, this predefined box that says, this is the only way to be, most likely. Um, and your sex must also be primary and designated towards this person, and your arousal must be as well. And if it's not, there's something wrong and bad with you. And that that alone like creates this entire paradigm where we are isolating humans from full expression from day one by living in a paradigm where their expression is controlled. For sure. Absolutely. I call it the the myth of the happily ever after. It's this myth that we get fed from a very early age that if you seek high and low, overcome obstacles, find the one and you will live happily ever after. And there are never any instructions attached to the happily ever after. Nobody tells you how you're supposed to live happily ever after. You're just supposed to. Uh, And then when people don't, they either think there's something wrong with them or there's something wrong with their chosen one. They haven't found the one or they feel like, what they have is as good as it's going to get. And there is nowhere, there's nowhere for it to grow over and evolve into something that they might like. Uh, and so many, so much of the, the internal conflict, I think comes from that myth for sure. I do want to talk to you about how, let's see where I want to take this because there's a, a two paths that I want to follow. One, I want to talk more about um, how it, how our attachment system shows up um, in our sex, in our sex life. And also the sort of the somatic and the emotional cues around attachment or insecure attachment and how do we identify them? How can we respond to them effectively? That's one track I definitely want to talk about. And I do want to talk about um, attachment systems and, rela- and and relationship structure being monogamy, non-monogamy, polyamory, whatever that looks like. Because I think from my experience, I work with people who are looking to redesign their 
existing monogamous relationship or future monogamous uh, future relationship in a way that ideally that they can thrive as a part of that is adopting a non-monogamous structure, right? And I do talk a lot about, well, the why, like why, why is it calling you? Because I do think that sometimes it is, if it is not a conscious, des- conscious design and a conscious relation, a conscious decision, that it is a, a maladaptive response to a, uh, an insecure attachment dynamic that's happening there and then. So those are the two topics we're going to cover. Let's go back to let's go back to sex because since we were there, and I want to talk about how um, that just on a somatic and emotional cues of attachment distress and what that looks like and, and how we can kind of uh, respond to it in a certain way. I think if you're okay with me giving an aside, um, one of the things that I want to encourage folks to do is figure out how to start separating your sexual expression and your sexual patterns um, from the relational attachment analysis because I think sometimes um, part of that like hindrance of your sexual expression and the tiny boxes that we build around it um, is the relational space that it has to fit in. And so we continuously filter our our expression based on like, does it fit these norms, these boxes, these identities that we've decided or that we are a part of? You can always integrate them later, but um, I think there's space for your attachment system is not deterministic in terms of your sex and your sex is not deterministic in terms of your attachment. You get, they get, they are interacting and they have a more dynamic relationship. And how do you give them both space to exist um, and ultimately heal your trauma and heal yourself and you ha- your sexual expression is going to continue to expand and grow and have a lot more potentialities. And so before you say, because I'm insecurely attached, I can I have to be monogamous and I have to have a primary partner or if you're polyamorous, I need to have a primary partner and I need to have these kind of behaviors with these kinds of play, heal the trauma first and then see where you're at in terms of that connection to yourself and to your relationships. So we, when you're still in that process of healing part, it's important to understand like, this thing that's coming up for me in the sexual experience is because of attachment. A really common example I get I get from clients is a lot of sadness and fear around pleasure. Um, so like they may avoid climax, especially the folks with vulvas um, may avoid climax, may have difficulty um, asking for what they want, have difficulty, um, or when they do receive, achieve some kind of pleasure, um, having a lot of emotions and tears and like shutting down after. And that's often a somatic cue that this feels unsafe. Like it's it feels unsafe to be taking up that most that kind of erotic space. And so that's one example of like the typically um, avoidant or anxious patterning coming into the bedroom. Um, We also see it in kind of how we relate to partners. Do we seek to withdraw immediately after? Do we seek a lot more connection immediately after? Do we struggle with having a consistent partner more than one time? Like, do we want to um, avoid avoidant folks are a lot better at casual sex often because they don't want, they don't want the emotionally entangled pieces of the puzzle. One research study that I was reading recently talked about securely attached folks are more likely to be able to receive pleasure and able to like be um, engaged in mutuality in partnership. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I think there is a lot more flexibility in your relational structure being distinct from your sexual structures. I think in a different paradigm where monogamy isn't the only framework um, for research, um, we might see that shift. There is a lot more space for sex to be exciting and amazing, whether you're partnered or not, and whether you're in a connection connected dynamic or not, um, but also being aware of it can be impacted by the emotional state of the connection too. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, I want to, I want to ask that question. So do you think that it's possible for you, for someone to sort of registering at a, the insecure part of the spectrum and within the, within that relationship and from a relational place yet feel secure in sexual expression? Totally. So I mean, I have a lot of being in sexuality communities. I, I see a lot of different expressions and identities and there's a lot of humans who are really grounded in their sexual connections, like really amazing kink dynamics or really amazing um, consistent lovers, consistent play partners, consistent engagement in their pleasure. 
and yet don't have any committed partnerships in their life. Um, and so I think that the, the, the fact that we've decided they have to be linked means that we have a bias in the research. And there's consistently this, this evidence searching for confirmation of this bias, which is that um, when you're securely attached, you're going to want more partner and loving connected sex, um, which just isn't the case. Like there's a lot of, I know a lot of non-monogamous folks who have really amazing, pleasurable sex um, without a connection to that person um, or with a connection that's maybe different than what we would decide as a typical primary attachment connection. So in some ways, it's both expansive as well as moving sex out of that lens entirely. And then what is the distinction where you might be insecure in your relational structure, but somehow secure in your sexual expression? I think for those folks, they've spent a lot of work on their sexual selves. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in, in the same way that we work on like our fitness and our work on our health and we work on our family relationships, we work on our careers, we can work on our sexual selves. Um, and that relationship to that sexual self is part of that becoming your own primary attachment source, becoming the safe within yourself piece. And the more safety you have within yourself, the more capable you are of navigating how you want to show up in sexual dynamics. One of the research research articles that um, is really um, highly quoted right now, which I think is actually kind of funny, he uses the word relationship irrelevant sex, <laughs> which is just always funny. <laughs> relationship irrelevant sex, um, and it just made me, like, like there's just there's so the researchers are so worried about finding what is the motivation behind this. Is it about procreation or is it about partnership? And like those are the only two motivations that research consistently gives validity to. And then there's these things like relationship irrelevant. Like I just want to. I just want to fuck. I just want to have, I want to play. I want to be in my body. I want to be expressive. I want to do something weird and cool with a stranger that I'll never see again. And it can be deeply connected and beautiful in that moment. And then I may never have any connection to them. And that's still okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely talk a lot about sex as an activity uh, versus, a, a, you know, a, a sex as a part of a, a relational connection. And that we definitely see that in people who who choose to be swingers. I feel like in the swinger community, there's a real um, just the viewing of sex as an activity, as a good fun pastime, a good hobby. And I do actually, I know I also talk about taking up sex as a hobby. Um, I do think that just separating sex from your relational dynamics and even some of the emotional stuff and looking at it as a hobby, as a skill, as a thing that you can learn and grow around and try and explore can actually go towards becoming more safer and um, feeling totally. more safer in yourself. Um, yeah. In some ways you're, you're taking away the kind of like a relational baggage that is tied up in sex. You're giving it like its own space to be. Yeah. Yeah. And what are, what are some of the other ways that people can um, move towards feeling safe with themselves? Like how, what are some of the things people can do, especially if they're, if they recognize themselves as being on the more on the insecure side of things, what are some of the things that they can do to move towards the secure um, end? I think one of the biggest indicators, if you're not sure, I'll show you the graph next week, but if you're not sure if you're more of the insecure with yourself versus insecure with other people um, side of the scale, a good question for that is where, what is your worth tied to on sort of a daily basis? And what is your anchor to well-being? Um, what is your sense of self um, in the world? When you think about like your definition, I'm, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm a caregiver, I'm a, you know, how do you relate to your sense of self um, in partnership and in community? And the more anchored you are to this person that you're with, like your relationship as your sense of self, as your anchor to identity, um, the more difficult it is to have a attachment that is distinct from that person. So the minute that person is missing, gone, dead, <laughs> unavailable, no longer in your life, um, your sense of self is now dramatically wrapped up into this, this, this disconnection because now you need to figure out what is your platforming for well-being. Um, and so I think it's finding that way to be a whole person while being in partnership and seeing partnership as much as this, it is a constant gift. It is this like 
I always say this to, to my couples who are having issues around sex, like sex is a gift freely given. And if at any point it is not a gift freely given, it's not okay. And so shifting our dynamic into this love, sex, connection, all the things that our partners give us are an adjunct to our already solid foundational base that we are for ourselves. Right. And and also, okay, so from there, I want to take it to the next step with partners, right? So I, you know, starting with a whole self, um, a lot of the work that I do in my in my practice and also some of the reasons why we, I mean, a lot of the foundation of how we choose programming for Curious Fox is around the know thyself piece, right? Because I think that when you get to know yourself, when you can really reflect and then find solutions and inspiration and permission to really work with the things that you find, to really see if they're adaptable, if they're not, like how can you, how can you make them more adaptable and also connect with the community of other people who are doing it? a lot of the work that we're trying to do is around that, like give people the, the, the tools. And this is a part of this, is a part of this. Um, I'm interested in also, even though you sort of know thyself and you do the work for yourself, what about as a partner, as a partner of somebody who maybe um, might be insecurely attached and, and often it's probably getting enacted on both sides, right? It's, it's, it's often people are on the, you know, the insecurity within the attachment, I think is reflected though. It's enacted differently. It's reflected on, on all sides of the, the, the relationship being a, a, you know, a monogamy or, or, or non-monogamy. What are some of the things that you can do to, to take, we talked about how you can take care of yourself. What about your partner? Yeah, I'm going to um, go through kind of like a four-step plan for folks next week. But one of the the sort of first step, knowing knowing your patterns, knowing how you relate to it and what, where you're most likely to fluctuate, getting support from a therapist or other people in your life to have some sense of like knowing the parts you want to work on and how you're going to be working on those things, whether it's personal development or um, therapy, whatever the thing is. And then in, your, in the partner dynamic, you're both strategizing how you can utilize their skills, their desire, their connection with you, um, and intimacy with them as tools for your healing and your, and your support. Um, so our partners, like when we're engaging in a dynamic with them, they're signing up for all of us, right? Not that they need to carry all of it, but that they are willing to, um, engage with it at times and it is still ours to manage. And yet there's going to be moments where like, before my partner goes on a date, there's maybe insecurity or fear. I need to hear these couple of phrases that really help me ground into validation and support before you go out. Um, when you come back, I would love to have a connection with you around how to come back into your I'm loved and I'm important still. Um, you know, so ways that we both A, ask for validation and figuring out what actual phrases your neuro- nervous system needs to hear. I'm important. I'm loved. I'm wanted. And this is regardless of your relationship structure. This is monogamous folks too. I'm cared for. I'm important. Um, so building in verbal validation. And then second thing I always recommend folks is there's actually a, a kid's book that I use in, when I used to work with kids in therapy called I Love You Rituals. And But coming up with your own I Love You Rituals with your partner. And so every day you're integrating what are things that you do that um, are anchors to love, well-being, belonging, safety. And because kind of like that circle, what we do with kiddos, the 50 to 100 times a day, you may not do that with your partner and likely, hopefully not that many, but maybe it's three times a day, you have some kind of ritual that is a check-in, a kiss on the forehead, uh, um, you're important to me. Um, and you have your rituals that you come up with with each other that help with anchoring into safety and security with each other. And then sex can be a piece of that puzzle where in your sexual play, I really like use of BDSM and kinks kind of things for helping heal attachment wounds because <laughs> you can literally role play um, the areas that you want to heal and then have it be time limited. So this your partner is not becoming your mommy, hypothetically, but in that one hour time frame, they're giving you nurturing, caretaking and holding and resonance in the way that you didn't get as a kiddo and that your pleasure is important and you're fully seen. And then it can end and you can go back to a place of mutuality and equity again. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've also um, both experienced and seen both with my own eyes and also reported in sessions of um, how DDSM and kink can be also used to restore some trauma because then you can kind of have an experience that has a, a beginning, middle and end and it is resolved. Yeah, certainly. And it, and it gives it space for um, having clear communication. I always say that for folks who, who want to like role play some of their trauma and reenact it with a partner, I always say the way that this is actually healing is because you're getting back control to dictate how you show up in it. And you are, you are the person in power in the dynamic and engaging in play that is clearly negotiated and boundaried. <laughs> and if it's not those things, then you're just reenacting trauma. So um, there's a lot of caution in how we, how you do that. But for those who are outside of the kink space, um, there's a lot of ways that just any couple can engage in corrective experiences in sex. Um, super simple things like when you're getting activated, you stop and, and check in. Um, knowing your system, when your system's shutting down, when you're disconnected from your pleasure, when you're too much in your head having space where you're negotiating, we can always take a pause and do a um, resonance activity. Super easy one that I teach clients that's really concrete. Whoever the person that's activated is um, just puts their face against the heartbeat and just like press your nose or your cheek into their heartbeat and take some deep breaths because it's less vulnerable than like eye contact, which can be really hard when you're activated. Um, But it's giving you a sense of like you're safe, you're held, you're connected um, and you're still here and I'm still here. And it's very much like mimicking that like early attachment um, bonding with, with a parent. So just like a, a brief pause and I like take some breaths um, and then decide and then, and then I check in, how do, do we want to resume? Do we want to try something else? What happened there? So lots of ways that you're like letting your system, letting your body have a say in your sexual encounters and not having your brain dictate how you show up in it, especially when you're in trauma activation. Yes, absolutely. And some of the things that you're saying is, you know, it's, 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 I call it kind of biohacking, right? Really understanding how the nervous system works. And this idea of like heartbeat um, is mimicking that, that initial childbirth, you know, like you're immediately like what you know of soothing, how we, where we start with soothing is, you know, on a chest with a heartbeat. And in fact, it starts in the womb where the heartbeat is the, the most familiar, consistent sound, right? So using that in your adult life, when you're activated, go back to that, that very primitive, very base activated inner child, which is essentially what, what's happening, right? It's the trauma is, is happened back then. So finding soothing that, that really speaks to the age of the, your, your emotional and mental age of what you're enacting right now makes a lot of sense to me. It's a lot of sense to me. I want to go back and um, mention something that you talked about how we, like when we are with our partners, we are, we are with all of them. Like we subscribe to all of them. And one of the things that I definitely love mentioning to people is that you can love somebody. Um, you also need to decide if you can tolerate them. And I think those two, just because you love somebody doesn't mean that you are willing or able to tolerate them. And I think those are, those are two decisions that you need to make when you are connecting with somebody and, and contemplating any kind of relationship, what it might look like. Love is one thing, um, being able to tolerate them and their, their stuff is a whole other dynamic. Certainly. I mean, I work, I do, I lead a support group with trauma survivors every week. And I, we always talk about dating because it's dating is really hard as a survivor. And I always tell folks like you need to tell partners, you know, very early on in the first month that you're a trauma survivor and like what that might look like and how that might impact how you show up in partnership and in sex and, and what that might include in terms of how they might want to be involved. And it's not an obligation. Like this is the checklist you must follow, but instead it's a negotiation. Like what are, are there ways you might want to be supportive of me in this? And I mean, I do this with my partner every day (laughs) and we're consistently checking in around like, do you want, do you want to support me in this thing? And this thing's happening and can, you know, can you hold this space? Um, and that seeking consent around how our partners engage gives us a lot more freedom and flexibility that my, my, my trauma and my, my experience is valid, is seen, is heard and understood. Even if they can't always hold all of it, they are a container for knowing that I'm in this experience and finding their fit. And then me also diversifying amongst other people that are my providers and support systems that can help me with 
managing all those reactions and systems that come back and get activated. Yeah, yeah. I think that also goes for what we were talking about earlier about the sort of the using sex as a, a tool of healing, whether it be kink or whether it'll be like noting when you're activated and sort of slotting in some soothing um, while you're having sex during, before and after. I think having some um, structure around that, I imagine, is also important for the relationships. You don't want the relationship to be purely for healing. You don't want sex to be purely for healing um, that you can name. Like, I think in relationships, we do heal. I think one of the purpose of relationship is to heal one another. And I think adaptive, healthy, thriving relationship has some components of mutual healing. Would you say that it's important to make sure that there is, that it's not just all about that? Certainly, which is why there's a lot of consent in the process. Like you're checking in to make sure, do you want to engage in this and how much do we want to do that? And when there's really heavy weeks, you may want to have weeks where like it's a lot more playful. And I think play is actually one of the ways that I really encourage folks to find healing in connection because you're you're taking away the sort of heaviness around these acts and this like sex is so inten- intensely meaningful. Um, one of the most common things you see in, in research around sex and attachment is people's belief that sex is the indicator that I'm, that I'm wanted, that I'm loved, um, that I am that I belong here. It, it holds so much weight for people around desirability and around importance to their partner. And I think when we can take it out of that lens and that like, sometimes it is that thing, but sometimes, but often it is not that thing (laughs) and giving it space to like, sometimes be really playful and silly and sometimes just about coping and sometimes about role play. And sometimes you're a dragon and sometimes (laughs) we're imagining the work down the street is joining us, you know, whatever the thing is, like the fantasy place is the one of the most, I think, untapped human potential skills in the, in the universe. <laughs> there's just endless amount of potential expression and identity and like abundance of self that can come out in fantasy and role play and connection with our partners um, when there's the freedom and flexibility to do that. And so if you're looking for somewhere to start in terms of like getting away from too heavy, to, too much heaviness and healing trauma with a partner is dig into how you can be safe in fantasy and role play together. Cause that's just a, like a very wide pool. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I, I just finished reading um, *Sapiens* by Harari. Harari, I can never say his name. And one of the things that he talks about in there that the distinct the distinction between the human species versus the rest of the species on the planet is that, um, as far as we know, we're the only species that can I- imagine things that can that can be creative in that kind of imaginary way. And because we can imagine, we can make it happen. And I think it, it is such a uniquely human thing, and it's what put us in put us in the sort of the top of the food chain, and 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 where we are in the world, and we're able to innovate and build, and you know do these the amazing, wonderful, brilliant things. It's because we have this capacity to imagine and hold these ideas in our heads to such an extent that we can build societies around it. You know, things like things that we take for granted, is like money, is just an idea that we hold on, and we like not only hold on in our own heads, but we mutually hold on to it and, and build structures around it. So it is so powerful. It is such a huge tool and it has so much power to be able to heal us in this particular way. Yeah. It's funny as you're saying that I was imagining attachment as kind of this like tiny box we've built around like our imaginable selves and like our fantasy selves. And like, like it, it is this huge potentiality that we are on, that we have untapped um, and that could really be the place where there's so much human expansion and healing that has yet to be explored because we've decided that, both a modern normative framework as well as a tantric framework is keeping us in these relationships that are very contained and limited and don't allow sex to be free. Angie, do you think that is cultural, societal, or evolutionary slash biophysical? That's it. Let me tell you why I'm asking this and I want to hear, I want to hear what you have to say. Because um, one of the things that I say often is that pair bonding is evolutionary and monogamy is con- social construct, right? And we, conv- we conflate the two and we say... 
um, well, humans are pair-bonding species. Yes, we are, but pair-bonding doesn't necessarily mean monogamy, and we just we, we don't. I don't think we necessarily understand what that means. So that's why I want to ask you, like, is it is it nature? Is it nurture? Probably a bit of both, but like, how does that really in, in, gets enacted? So sort of like two references for you. One of my favorite like non-monogamy books is What Love Is and What It Could Be by Carrie Jenkins. Um, and she talks a lot about the, this this exact question, which is that it is both. It is always both. It's there's biological wiring and there is this the socialization. And I, and I think my curiosity is around: can we take out the socialization piece of this puzzle um, in terms of this strict paradigm to allow attachment closest? Yes, we want bonds, we want connections. But you know, for the last five years, my closest connection has been my beautiful, amazing cat I had for fifteen years, and my best friend Stella, who you met. <laughs> Those are my primary attachment sources, you know. So, like my in that in that lens, my pair bonding has been with those two creatures, distinct from partnership. And so, how we can be more expansive in our relationship to what does belonging mean? How do we build community? Um, and how do we take it out of these strict bonds that keep us in relationships that aren't serving us, in abusive dynamics, misogynistic patriarchal dynamics that don't serve us? Because we continue to believe that my importance, my value, and my anchored well-being is in this structure. And when we can eliminate that structure, we have so much more space to find relational configurations that actually serve us and that actually best nourish how we relate to the world and how we relate to our own identities. So yeah, I mean, we're humans are endlessly curious and endlessly seeking to have connections that are meaningful to them. And it's limitless in terms of what that expression can look like. Yeah. Um, do you find that gender, gender identity and the society's take on gender plays a big role in the way that our attachment is shaped? Certainly. And I, I definitely am not a gender specialist. I do a lot of gender related work, but I'm, I'm, I'm a cis female. And so I get that my, I have a lot of privilege in that conversation. And in acknowledging that, I think that we are, we are again, socialized to believe that our gender has a certain role in attachment patterning, um, often around heteronormative um, structures. And so when we believe that we're supposed to be a nurturer, a caregiver, um, th- those who are femme identified, nurturer, caregiver, um, support person to this masculine head, we limit our capacity to understand how our own potential expansion, both in sex and pleasure and identity and relationship formation could actually look, you know, from minute one, when kids are being assigned um, gender traits and gender identities and, and socialized in such a way that it limits their ability to actually figure out how they might relate to the world, which is again, potentially limitless and amazing. This stuff is so important, so, so interesting to me, and, and I read and research about it, and there's so much more stuff coming out every day. Um, the thing that I always come back to is, that, especially around gender, and, and similar to you, I'm a cis female, I do have a lot of privilege around it. Um, I try to be as open and, and, and empathetic to all the other experiences, but I have I am limited to my own. One thing that I do keep coming back to, though, is around childbearing, right? Just from on a species level, that the way that um, our species is, is propagated is through ch- childbearing and that childbearing is a massive impact on the female uh, or the, the uterus owner. And that not, that o- not only that the, a newborn um, is entirely dependent on um, the mother, it is also makes the mother dependent on somebody else. Certainly in the first year um but really realistic to for up to three to three or four years that you are what i call the blob the human blob is dependent on on mom and mom is dependent on someone else to take care of her so with that in play i think that it is a matter of safety right there is there is a matter of physical safety that if you are going to have children that you are depending on somebody else for yourself for for well-being you can't physically take care of yourself and I'm wondering how that kind of works out in the attachment dynamic. It's like a it's like a constant thing that I think about. 
and you know, I'm, I'm, I've not had children. Um, so I can't speak to like that, that physical manifestation, but from what I've seen with clients, there's some really amazing, badass new moms who completely independently care for themselves and have other communities. They have communities of family and friends and others that care for them. And so I think, um, it does, it's not necessarily our, our human social species did much better in community than we did in dyads. Like the dyadic pairing has never been a, a successful model. Um, and that model was about patriarchal control. <laughs> so the more we, the more the world isolated us and kept us into these systems away from community and interconnectedness, it, it, it allowed ownership of property and money and, and female genitalia specifically, um, to be controlled. And so I think I don't think attachment is a good reason to say that we should perpetuate the dyadic pairing model. If anything, um, it's even more of a reason to say we need community-based connections. <laughs> we should be having children in communities and with extended support systems that include lots of humans who are there for caring and supporting and um, and being there for, the, for that family. Sure. I mean, it's funny when you're saying that it makes you think how um, people talk about when they talk about wealth, they're talking about diverse, they're diversifying their portfolio. You know, it's like a, as a big, big, big thing that people talk about. I think it's the same idea with your uh, with your support network. Uh, you have to diversify your support network. Uh, and, and not only because um, then you have more of it available, but also people bring different skills, different experiences, different modalities and ways of being that might serve you in different in different ways that you might need the one person I mean this thing that we always talk about one person can't be your everything they really can't because we are limited to our own experiences as well it's, it's not even metaphorically just they literally can't be everything because they don't have the skills and the experience that you might need you know so I'm, I want to just note that Jackie is sitting intently listening and taking notes um, and I want to bring her in. This is the most silent that I've ever been, I think. Yeah, I want to bring her in because um, it's a conversation that, that we have all the time, you know, and, you know, right now, Jackie, you're going through a, a relationship transition and this idea of attachment is coming back up again. And I'm interested in if you have any um, thoughts or questions and, and what, have you heard anything that made you, either it was new information or that made you reflect on where you're at? Yeah. I mean, so yes, I have been silent because I have been feverishly taking notes the entire conversation. I am somebody who certainly has insecure attachment. I think that I um, grew up believing that I was the only adult in the room that my parents didn't have the emotional capacity as wonderful as they were. I didn't believe that they had the tools from a very young age to take care of me. And so I have, there's a, as a result of that, there's a lot of trust issues. I'm currently partnered with someone who would both, I would say have insecure attachment. One shows up as avoidant and the other one shows up more as anxious. And I show up generally more as anxious, but can, you know, pinch hit <laughs> depending on the, on the situation. Um, and I also parent a nine-year-old who also demonstrates a lot of insecure attachment as also shows up as very anxious and clingy. And so for me, I hear this via the lens and this is work that I've been doing for years and things that I've been researching on my own and certainly conversations that Effie and I have been having, but I've been thinking about this through the lens, both as a human being, as a partner and as a parent and all of the ways in which, you know, that at some point I, my, my ex-husband and I separated around uh, two when my daughter was about two years old. And, you know, looking back, certainly I have my master's in social work and this was all work that I had done, but I don't certainly during that time, this was not a part of my mind, nor would that have necessarily made a difference. I don't know if we would have stayed together because of attachment, you know, theory at that point, but I understand now why that, how that decision could have impacted how my, my daughter shows up now and some of her concerns around attachment. So as I think, as I hear all of these things, one of the things I think is what next so I, I understand the patterns in my behavior and there are things that I'm working through on my own and with my partners and as a parent. And I'm, I, I wonder like, what are the resources available for folks who look at their children and say, Oh shit, 
<laughs> there's some things there. Oh, look at themselves. Right, exactly. Well, first I look at her and I think she's nine. I'm like, okay, I have potentially a decade left, probably less than that. And you know, I'm being, I'm being optimistic to really put in some place, some things. And we've been really working closely on that so that she can show up in really healthy relationship, both with herself and others and for myself and my partners as well. So what next, what other resources, what can we be doing as people who are interested in this work? I, mean, I think my first to go to is always get a good therapist who will support you through all of the pieces of the puzzle. Cause like we, we have a hard time seeing around our own edges. So we have, we, we can't necessarily always see the places that we are showing up in those same reactions. And so just having somebody that can call it out, like, Oh, that's an attachment related wound. And I, I've sat in couples therapy sessions and says that, that, that that's avoidance. That's anxious. That's avoidance. I just, I'm just calling it out repeatedly because I think, um, and not to label them, but to say like this, this is a pattern laden in this thing. And like your worry about, um, what your partner is, is doing or you're concerned about where they are all the time or your need to like push them away for three days before you can have a conversation about this conflict. Like these are all things that are coming up um, because of these patterns. And so um, awareness with another person can be really helpful and just someone that can help brainstorm your specific dynamic because every humans are so complex and because they're survival responses, they're going to constantly be adapting. <laughs> Our systems are looking to find the maximal way to survive. And so if your partner shifts something even tiny a bit, you're going to do the same. And so it just, it's really complex and you need people in your life to help navigate that. So a good therapy. Unfortunately, there's not an attachment book that I super like that specifically targets um, issues around intersectionality and oppression in attachment, which is like what I'm hoping for someday. Please, someone write that book. I do like um, my grandmother's hands in terms of historical and inter intergenerational trauma and oppression um, as one like anchor. Um, and then the Pete Walker book, from, from Surviving to Thriving, is really good in terms of some of the attachment wounds that are trauma-based. So I think that the reading is really great. Um, there's lots of really intelligent humans that are having these conversations, um, especially I think in the, in the realm of non-monogamy, um, because it's kind of like there were maybe three articles in the world of scholarly journals I could find that really targeted attachment and sexuality and in non-monogamy. So I think there's a lot more research and, and work to be done around how do we understand kind of this changing paradigm and what it's like to feel safe in multiple relationships at once and to help kids feel safe in multiple relationship dynamics at once. For sure. I think whenever I've come across the, the sort of the cross sections of uh, where attachment is spoken about in terms of non-monogamy is that it is a pathology. That is non-monogamy is a result of an insecure attachment system and it is a pathology to be fixed. Um, that's and, it, and the clients that I work with are they've been through multiple therapists and this is the message they're getting and they're like okay not fine I have you know an insecure attachment system and I want no one to be well, what is it going to look like how can it look like in a healthy wholesome way like can we just talk about that rather than say it's bad and get a slap on the wrist you know certainly and, and I, I also really like Clementine Morgan's work around it um, I think there's definitely there are folks who are having the conversations um, there's also some poly researchers who've done some digging in and around what attachment styles are more likely to be in non-monogamy. So that's maybe the closest we've gotten, just like some like, what styles do we most often see? Um, and from that research, we've, they've seen that anxious attachment folks have a less are more likely to choose it, but are less likely to be successful in non-monogamy um, because of the like anxiety that's perpetuating jealousy and fear. Whereas avoidant, avoidant folks are more open to it, but tend to not choose it just because it seems like it's too much of an investment for them. <laughs> so there is sort of this dichotomy. But when I was, I was trying, I, I drew the little boxes last night in my, in my chart and I was trying to label like which non types of non-monogamy would fall under which category. <laughs> and I keep coming back to like, there, it's not deterministic. And so like, I couldn't say that swingers are more likely to be secure or are more likely to be avoidant or that monogamous folks are more likely to be um, um, anxious because it, it, it's not deterministic in terms of relationship structure. Every relationship structure could fall somewhere within the attachment spectrum. And it's more about do your work <laughs> independently to heal your own trauma and then figure out how you best want to relate. Second thing is that um, 
the research consistently shows regardless of your relationship style, monogamy, monogamous, non-monogamous, um, swinger, whatever, your relationship is likely to succeed if you keep your agreements. So it doesn't matter what the agreements are, whether it's you can fuck 15 people or one person, keep your agreements. And that will help with maintaining a, a, a firm bond with that partner. And if you're not maintaining maintain your agreements, change or review your agreements. <laughs> right. And have them be flexible enough that they can be renegotiated. Because if, right. if an agreement's not, rene- not able to be renegotiated, it's not a consensual agreement. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And, and I think then um, it adds more stress because you're, um, uh, Jackie often talks about changing the measure of success. You know, if you're not succeeding, change the measure of success. In the same way, if you're constantly finding yourself um, out of integrity of your agreements, it's a cue to revisit your agreements. <laughs> change your agreements, totally. Yeah, I remember the, the the agreement I made with my partner to only use gloves with all new people, and that that, that went out the window real quick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Having fucking a new girl at a party, I was like, oh, I guess that that, that one didn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, change your re- review and change your in- in agreement. That in fact, I would always recommend people just to review your agreements um, periodically, every three months, every month, whatever that works for you. Just to be like, yeah, we're still on the same page because people change, relationships change environments change. I'm sure you had a set of agreement um, that really worked for you. And then a pandemic happened and now you can't move when you're in the same house that don't ask, don't tell is going to be very hard to maintain, you know? So um, definitely having some sort of an, a system in place to read the, those agreements will, will serve towards um, thriving in your relationship. Do you think? Yeah. Well, that's common. It was like, you know, regardless of what relationship dynamic you're in, also figure out how to ask for what you want and need. Um, and one of my common mantras is ask for everything you want all the time with no expectations. And so the better that you get at figuring out like how to show up fully as your whole person, as yourself in that dynamic, the more effective you're going to be in finding partners that are a good fit and letting your partner get to say no and then finding other people who would be a better fit. Absolutely. And for somebody on the other side, I'm, what you're saying is so resonates with me. Ask for what you want, no expectations. On the receiving side of that, to realize that no is an answer, uh, no is a complete sentence and it's an, it's an answer. You can say no and it's a complete sentence. You don't need to. And, and I think one of the skills that will really add and go towards our building resilience skills is to metabolize rejection and to expose yourself to it and to metabolize it in a way that it doesn't. And I think that also builds towards a healthier attachment system because you don't, your value that isn't tied to the other person's whim, you know, that rejection is just information and you, you learn to metabolize it. You don't make it about you, but about the other person and about the circumstance. And then, and that's, it goes towards building resilience, which I think is one of the most important skills that, that, that actually go towards building healing from trauma and going towards a healthier attachment system. Angie, this was a beautiful conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I'm, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and um, really getting into the, 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 not only the sort of the details of what attachment is, but bringing it home um, to folks to really understand what it looks like in the home and in their own experience. And that, that there are things they can do to, to move um, from wherever they are, if it's not serving them, that it is not deterministic. It is not one way. Um, and you, it can be, it can be shifted. It's going to show up differently and that you can find the place where it feels good. And we're going to, one of the ways that we're going to do that is um, host you doing a workshop on this. Yes. I gave some teasers to that, but next week. (laughs) Even in this hour-long dialogue, we have just scratched the surface today. So on Wednesday, May 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Angie's going to be joining us in the virtual curiosity salon, and we'll be unpacking the various attachment styles and the ways that they show up in sexuality, specifically those who are exploring expansive relationships and and sexual styles. So 
just remember that your attachment neurobiology plays a vital role in sexuality and the assessment of what is safe and the potential edges of exploration and what's possible in relationship structures. And so we promise you that you will learn about yourself, about your partnerships, about your parenting style and more. If you are interested in joining us on May 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern, tickets are available on our Facebook page, in our Instagram bio and on our website, all of which you can search at wearecuriousfoxes.com. You can follow us. We are curious foxes, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon. If you are a Patreon member, depending on what tier you join, you have access to video recordings from all of our past events. You can join us for our presents events for $5 tickets. You can join us for a monthly social that is exclusive to our Patreons. We have quarterly soirees that we are now doing virtually. Our last one was a pajama party. And those you also get to attend for free. You get free tickets. You get, uh, ask me anything sessions with Effie blue. There are a lot of things that you get. If you join us and support the community of Curious Fox on Patreon, if you want to find out more about Angie Gunn, then you can visit her on her website at connectivetherapycollective.com and also follow her on Instagram and Facebook at connective therapy collective. And if you liked what you heard, then we encourage you to share this with others. Please like, review, share the podcast. It really does make a difference. Hashtag change the noise is something that we are incredibly passionate about here at Curious Fox. The goal is for you to receive permission and inspiration and to see things differently and to be curious in the things that you are hearing and reading and seeing and talking about and attending. And so if you believe that there are some things that you would like us to continue to explore, then we ask you to, to let us know. You can do that via any of those platforms that you follow us on or email us at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. We also have a phone number that you can call if you'd like to leave a message or a question. We can play your, your question on a podcast and we can answer it. And that number is 201-870-0063. And that's it. That's all the information that we got for you. That's what we've got. And I'm so looking forward to um, Angie's workshop coming up. And until then, friends, stay curious. Stay curious. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind. And we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.